Welcome back to the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. As a former supper club host, I'm always intrigued to know what people like to eat. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to contribute a dish to the season's virtual potluck supper, inspired by today's topic. In season two, my guests and I will be exploring our complex relationship with chocolate to coincide with the release of my latest book, The Philosophy of Chocolate, published by the British Library. Ever since Europeans encountered chocolate in the 16th century, it has been a divisive substance, as I explore in my latest book, The Philosophy of Chocolate. So you probably won't be surprised to learn that wars have been fought over it. We're not talking about modern warfare with guns and tanks, but in the field of commerce, where chocolate and who or what it represents can be a controversial subject. But before we get into one of the most famous historic chocolate battles, I'd like to introduce you to Colin. Colin is 33 years old and considers himself to be quite a debonair chap, with his brown velvety jacket cloaking his long body. Admittedly, the coloured polka dots are perhaps a bit much for some, but Colin doesn't seem to care. You'll always find him with a goofy smile plastered across his pale face. The young and old adore him, revelling in his sweet nature. In his relatively short life, he's also made his employers a lot of money, around £15 million in sales to be precise. Tall, dark, handsome and rich, what more could you ask for? Colin is of course a cake, or more specifically, a caterpillar-shaped creamy chocolate sponge roll filled with smooth chocolate buttercream and covered in a milk chocolate shell, to quote the marketing blurb from Marks and Spencer, who propelled him into the world in 1990. Colin has been described as a British institution, and he even has his own webpage and spin-off products. It's hard to imagine Colin being a source of any form of controversy. It is said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, so Colin must be overwhelmed by the compliments paid by other supermarkets who have issued forth their own Caterpillar cake clones with names like Wiggles, Cecil, Slinky and Morris. Marks and Spencer had largely tolerated these lookalikes until discount supermarket Aldi launched Cuthbert the Caterpillar a few years ago. Costing half the price of Colin, M&S saw Cuthbert as a threat, claiming that Cuthbert's superficial similarities to Colin misled customers into thinking they were getting a product of equal quality. A legal complaint was filed by M&S against Aldi for trademark infringement, and Cuthbert was forced to retreat. Aldi later agreed to make changes to Cuthbert to distinguish him from Colin, and Cuthbert returned to our shelves in spring 2022, although he no longer identifies as a caterpillar. However, Aldi was determined to have the last word, as you can see from their tongue-in-cheek television commercial, which aired in 2023. You can find a link to that in the show notes. 
but back to past chocolate cake wars. Today, I am joined by food historian and author of Sweet Invention, A History of Dessert, Michael Crondall. We're going to be talking about the iconic Sasha tort, which Michael has described as an edible manifestation of an urban cosmopolitan Vienna as smooth and fitted as a little black dress. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. So before we get into the history of the Sasha tort, can you tell me a little bit more about how chocolate came to arrive in Austria and how it was consumed? Surprisingly, chocolate gets to Austria relatively early compared to the rest of Europe, in part because the Habsburgs have this connection. So there's this House of Habsburg, right, which is the great imperial house of Europe, really. There's one branch that's in Spain, and there's another branch in Austria. At one point, it is a united empire under Charles V. Now, this is in the 16th century when Spain, of course, is going back and forth, slaughtering Indians and bringing back various New World ingredients, including chocolate. And chocolate is adopted very early in Spain. It's considered an aphrodisiac. There's all sorts of recipes. And essentially, initially, they take Aztec recipes. And the one way they adapt them is they add sugar to them. So pretty much all of that early chocolate is drinking chocolate. You know, think hot cocoa, but with chilies added and lots of lots of cocoa butter in it. So thick, soupy, uh, sweet, almost like a meal in and of itself. When the empire split, the Habsburgs are still going back and forth and back and forth between Madrid and Vienna. And consequently, they're picking up the tastes of, you know, of the Habsburg Empire, uh, the Spanish Habsburg Empire, bringing them back to Vienna. And consequently, you get chocolate being introduced very early. You get chocolatiers making drinking chocolate, right? So this is uh, stuff you mix up. And it's relatively coarsely ground at this point because it's all ground by hand. And that's pretty much the state of the art until the early 19th century. By this point, chocolate starts to be used in Austria, and among, among other places, in chocolate torts, cake, biscuits, those sorts of things. It's really almost used more as a coloring than a flavoring. So you have recipes, for example, from the 18th century, where you have, you know, a layer of green tinted with pistachios, a layer of brown tinted with chocolate, a layer of red tinted with something else. So it's more about the looks than the flavor. It really isn't until the 19th century that chocolate becomes a flavor. And this in part has to do with processing so that chocolate begins to be processed to be smoother. So it becomes an industrial product. I think we forget that we have this kind of like golden idea of, you know, artisanal, handmade and all that sort of thing. But Chocolate, as we know, it has to be ground industrially with equipment that is finely tuned in order to get it super, super fine. So it has that luscious melt in your mouth quality. And the first step of this is in the Netherlands, where uh, Van Houten uh, creates a system where you can grind it a little bit more finely. And then later on, the Swiss get it even finer still. By that point, chocolate has become a thing, not only in Austria, a thing for making cakes, that is, not only in Austria, but also in France, and to some degree in northern Italy. And there's a lot of back and forth again between France and Austria, because you will recall that Marie Antoinette, the wife of King Louis XVI, is a Habsburg princess. 
So once again, there is a lot of back and forth between the court of Vienna and the court of Versailles. French cooking becomes really dominant and French pastry becomes dominant throughout most of Europe by the time of the Napoleonic War. So Austrians are picking up certain techniques from the French. One technique is this light, airy cake called a biscuit by the French or a biscuit. And the other thing eventually is buttercream, but that's not going to help us with their soccer tort because soccer torts do not have any buttercream in them. Uh, no, they don't, do they? And you will be arrested in Austria if you put some in there. <laughs> oh, gosh, we don't want that. Just to clarify, because I'm sure some of the listeners will be a little bit confused, because obviously in England, a biscuit is like a cookie. Exactly. In the 19th century, it's like a fatless sponge. It's a sponge cake. Of course, biscuit comes from the word twice cooked, and it's really a biscotto or biscotti, what the Italians call it you know, twice cooked thing. But by the 19th century, and this is the confusing thing about trying to trace anything in terms of the etymology is word shift meaning. So that in the 19th century, a biscuit is in France, what later would be known as a pagenoise. Right. We're talking about sponge cake. So the 19th century, we start to see desserts coming to the fore in Austria. So who was going to be eating these chocolate confections? Because chocolate was still quite pricey then. It wasn't, it was more accessible to a broader audience, but I'm guessing it was something that was really eaten by the well-to-do? I would say by the middle classes and up. Uh, by the 19th century, it's not crazy expensive. What's crazy expensive, by the way, is vanilla at this point. But both sugar and chocolate are now being produced in several parts of the world by the mid-19th century. By the uh, 1850s, in England, certainly, fries and other companies are producing pretty much en masse. Particularly drinking chocolate is pretty much mass-produced by the middle of the 1850s. So I, I wouldn't say that it's an elite flavor. The other thing to remember is that in Central European cooking in particular, chocolate is never quite as dominant or quite as chocolate. The desserts aren't quite as chocolatey as you find in France or in, quite frankly, Britain and the US as well. The chocolate is a flavor ring. It is not the dominant flavor, if that makes sense. So what exactly is a Sacco Thought and what makes it so original? What makes it stand out from other chocolate gattos, for example? All right. So a Sacco Thought, first of all, is one of the very, very early all chocolate cakes. So you really don't see recipes for chocolate cakes around prior to this that are chocolate with a chocolate glaze. So I think that that's the first thing. You got a lot of chocolate happening. Second thing about the soccer is it is very, very specifically defined, and both Austrians, with a description in the official government document that you know uh, explains what you may or may not call a soccer tort, they have something like you know five hundred words describing exactly what it is allowed to be and what it is not allowed to be. So it's a sponge cake, a chocolate sponge cake that is only allowed to have eggs, flour, chocolate, and a couple of other ingredients in it that is either one or two layers, and there's much controversy about this, that is covered with an apricot glaze. And then the whole thing is covered with a chocolate, kind of a fudge-based glaze, more or less. So you cook down chocolate and sugar and some water, and you make it kind of a runny, fudgy glaze, and you cover the thing with it. 
Can I read you my favorite description of it? Yeah, no, please this do. Is, please do. Yes, this is from the late 19th century, something called the Appetit Lexicon, which was a German dictionary of recipes, encyclopedia of recipes, what have you. I just love this because it is not at all bureaucratic and it is totally over the top. What is called a soccer tort is a chocolate cake of a higher order, distinguished from her companions by wearing beneath her lustrous chocolate gown an undergarment of apricot jam. The soccer seems destined to preserve the name of its creator in the memory of generations to come, for it is a Viennese specialty, one of those sweet follies found in the imperial city of sweet abandon, which elsewhere can never be fully replicated. The soccer tort is imitated quite well by all of Vienna's confectioners and restaurants. But those enduring, enchanting, charmingly graceful originals made by Edward Soccer's company are inimitable. On the tongue, it is pure poetry. No wonder that more than 20,000 are exported each year to the whole world. And in fact, yeah, in the late uh, 19th century, uh, the soccer hotel was cranking these things out and sending them all over the world. And I think this is where the uniqueness and popularity of the cake, at least in Central Europe, uh, can be explained. And that is that there's nothing perishable in there. There's no buttercream. There's no heavy cream. There's none of that. There's a lot of sugar, especially in the glaze. Your classic sponge is kind of dry. And so the trick here is you take a pretty kind of a boring sponge. You cover it with apricot glaze, which seals it. So it's freshly made. It seals so all the moisture is sealed in. And then you put this thick chocolate fudgy glaze on top, which seals it further. So the thing is indestructible. So you can ship it halfway across the world and it's still okay at the other end without refrigeration. And this is the critical thing because there weren't that many sweet cakes you could ship anywhere. Uh, no. They were fragile. It, it's a fairly solid thing too. Yeah. <laughs> it's fragile. And then at the other end, what you do is you put a lot of whipped cream on it because it is on the dry side. And the whipped cream kind of brings the what could be a two, three week old cake back to life. Ah, I see. So we need to really talk about how it was invented because there's quite a legend that isn't there behind how Franz Sacker invented the cake. So at one point when I was doing research on this, I thought it'd be fun to look at Wikipedia entries on the soccer tort. I speak Czech, I'm Czech born, and I can sort of kind of get my way through German. So I looked at the Czech, the German, and the English entries, English language entries in Wikipedia. And what was fun about them was that they all had mistakes in them, but each one had a different mistake. So <laughs> that's intriguing because they're not translations, right? These these entries are written in each uh, language separately. It's not surprising that there are mistakes because, first of all, there's a bunch of different names that are the same. Franz Sacher was living in Vienna, working for the Austrian chancellor, Chancellor Metternich, who in his day was a really big deal. What, what time are we talking? What period? So we're talking about the 1830s. This is a bunch of years after the Congress of Vienna, where the big powers after the Napoleonic Wars have carved, carved up Europe. French cooking is all the rage, uh, in part because after Napoleon, after the revolution, all these French chefs didn't have jobs and went looking for jobs all over Europe. And so young Franz Sacher is working for a French chef in the house of the Austrian prime minister. 
the uh, the chancellor. The story goes that this kid who's an apprentice in the kitchens at the age of 15 whips up this cake and serves it to Prince Metternich and, you know, a bunch of his mates. And the cake is born and becomes world famous. That story is told by his son some 50 plus years later. Whether it's true or not, it seems somewhat questionable for a bunch of reasons. First of all, you got this 15-year-old kid. He's probably not in charge of making anything for the prince. Secondly, Franz Sacher himself, some 70, 80 years later, is interviewed by a Austrian paper. And he sees, he says, I invented this thing while I was running this catering company in Bratislava, what was known as Pressburg in those days, uh, the capital of Slovakia now. So there is the dueling story of the son, who at this point is running the most prestigious hotel in Vienna, the Sacher Hotel who says, oh, well, this thing that we serve every day, this was invented for the foremost personage, basically, in Austria, you know, 50 years ago or something like that. So, of course, he wants to make the legend as connected to fame as much as possible. Franz works for Metternich for a while. Then he works for the Esterhazys, who are another big Austro-Hungarian kind of family, lots of money. And eventually lands this job working for a casino in Pressburg, a.k.a. Bratislava, uh, by the 18, early 1840s. And he's doing all this catering. So he's, you know, going out to sit to separate locations and bringing food. And of course, again, this is the time before refrigeration. So it's a little tricky. And it makes every sense in the world that he comes up with this cake that is a caterer's dream. You can bring it anywhere. You can store it for a couple of weeks. Just whip up some extra, you know, some fresh whipped cream, refresh it, and the guests love it. So that makes the most sense, that it was actually in something a caterer would invent um, in the 1840s and probably not even in Austria, God forbid. So anyways, Franz comes back to Vienna, opens up a for lack of a better term, a delicatessen, where he's making cakes, making various takeout foods for the uh, Viennese middle classes. Now, his son in the meantime, so this is his son, Edward, gets into the restaurant business. He's briefly in Paris, then he goes back to Vienna, opens up a restaurant, and then he eventually opens up the Sacher Hotel, which is the place for every aristocrat who visits Vienna to go. It is the place to go. It's the Ritz of Vienna. And he served the soccer tour. Apparently, the guests, guests when they uh, leave and they've tasted this soccer tour, think, oh, this is pretty good. And he starts shipping these soccer torts all over Europe. And so this is the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. And slowly but surely, this cake becomes rather renowned. And of course, it always has the Sacher written over it. So in a sense, it is a form of marketing for the hotel. Yeah. The hotel is much more famous at this point than the cake. So this is the hotel's cake. So that's kind of the story of its invention and its popularization, because it does, in fact, become very popular. And by the 1890s, it is the cake in Vienna. It is the most famous cake. By sort of the 1890s, you get recipes appearing in cookbooks. But the first recipe appears in 1870. Okay. In a very, very popular cookbook. Curious thing about these early recipes, that early recipe must have been really skinny. The cake must have been really thin. 
they talk about a two centimeter high cake. So think about that. It's less than an inch high, right? Yeah. They also say cook it for half an hour. You can't cook a soccer torch for half an hour. It won't be cooked. But no. in those days, if it's a half of less, you know, three quarters of an inch high, you certainly can cook it quickly. And it also makes sense in some ways because the dryness that we sometimes associate with soccer tort has to do with the proportion of the sponge to the other ingredients, mainly the, the, the jam and the, and the chocolate glaze. So the proportion might have been more tart-like than cake-like, if that makes uh, sense. Okay. Presumably, the Sackers didn't have any problem at this point with recipes appearing for their iconic cake. Well, they didn't at this point, and they never did in the end because, as you may be aware, you can't copyright a recipe. So all you know, lots of recipes start appearing, and lots of variations start appearing. So right. yeah, uh, you get ones made with raspberry jam instead of apricot jam. You have ones that include nuts. You have ones that there's one that actually sounds really good with a hazelnut buttercream in the center, which I think might be almost better than a real soccer, but it wouldn't ship. No, no, it wouldn't ship. Yeah, it does sound good, actually. I'd eat that, definitely. So let's fast forward a little bit. So we've got this wonderful cake associated with the hotel, as you say, to stay in Vienna. But by the 1930s, the hotel's fortunes are sort of waning, aren't they? Well, I, I think the the best way to describe it I would be to say they've gone down the toilet, except the problem, one of the problems with the hotel is that they don't actually have private toilets. <laughs> Thus, <laughs> it's a problem with a super luxury hotel, yes. Yeah. So what happens, of course, is that Vienna loses its empire uh, after the First World War. There is a serious, serious recession in Vienna because Vienna is a city of a scale for an empire. It's not, you know, it, it's the scale of Paris, for a country the size of Austria, for 10 million people, 8 million people. So you've got basically a quarter of the population of Austria living in Vienna. It's a multinational city. It is goes into a serious depression, uh, even before the Great Depression. When the Great Depression hits, the hotel is stodgy. It's old. It doesn't have good indoor plumbing. It doesn't have central heat. You would still had fireplaces in rooms, which sounds romantic today, but not in the middle of a Viennese winter. Uh, no running water in the rooms. Basically, it may have been luxurious in 1870, but by the 1930s, it is not. Anna Sacher, who is the widow of Edward, sells the place because she is, I'm not sure how old she is at this point, but she must be in her 80s at this point. So she sells the place to a bunch of investors, Viennese investors, among whom are several lawyers. When she does this, her son, and this is where the confusion often comes in, Edward, also sucker, so there's Edward and there's his son Edward, is convinced that they may have sold the hotel, but they didn't sell the rights to the cake. Oh. And so he goes down the street to the most famous confectioner in Vienna, Demels, which had been around since the 1830s, if I remember correctly, probably older than that, and sells them the recipe. And so this is now the Edward Sacher cake and Demels, uh, whose owner is also named Anna, just to confuse things. So she puts it on the menu. And now you've got the Sacher tort of the Hotel Sacher and the Edward Sacher 
cake at Damals, and they're spitting distance apart. There's a five-minute walk, if that. The new owners of the soccer take umbrage at this. Was there any difference between the two cakes, though? Were they well, exactly the same? That is actually a little bit unclear at this point, although it becomes clear later on in another lawsuit. Anna, at some point in the 20s, had changed the recipe. So it wasn't the original. Had changed the recipe by splitting the cake in half. And again, it's, that's logical because as you make the cake higher and higher, it gets too dry. So you want to put that extra layer of jam in the middle of it. At Demos, they probably had what was the original recipe, which was the one layer. So the lawyers wanted to keep the, the trademark of this thing. So it's a trademark infringement lawsuit. We get to call our cake the original soccer tour. You guys don't. You can call it something else. But we get to call it the original. And of course, Edward Soccer was claiming that this was the original because actually it was the original. So Damals had the right. original recipe, but the, the hotel to, wanted to call to... theirs the original recipe. So this thing goes into court, back and forth, back and forth. And this is the late 1930s. Austria is run by a fascist government. Germany, of course, is now run by the little Austrian. And eventually the little Austrian with the mustache invades Austria or invades or absorbs Austria, the Nazis march into Vienna. And just around the same time in 1938, the hotel wins the lawsuit. So Second World War starts, Austria is absorbed by Nazi Germany. And yes, they've got the name. War ends, uh, Vienna gets bombed relatively heavily. And they're rebuilding, it's poor, things are bad. Nobody worries too much about cakes. But by the 1950s, the owners, uh, which are still the same owners, the still the same lawyers, are now f- upset that other people are still using this original soccer tort name. And though they start another lawsuit, and uh, this would be known the seven years cake war, because it took seven years to resolve. It's the it's the Tortenkrieg. It's so a tort. Yeah, I mean, it's German, right? So they put 16 words Tortenkrieg. together. Krieg. I love that. Tortenkrieg. Tort is the word for cake. Krieg is war. So the Tortenkrieg. And this goes on and it sort of wends its way up through one layer to another layer to another layer, so to speak, of the legal system in Vienna or in Austria. And eventually wends its way up all the way to the Supreme Court of Austria. Where the judges are asked, are asking various cooks and chefs to come in and sort of give their opinions about what this is the original, this is the original. They're looking at, you know, old documents, getting testimony from all sorts of people involved in cake making and eventually come out with the following decision. This is a legal decision about (laughs) the trademark allowing the hotel to call it a original soccer tour. And this is where it comes out that they don't have the original soccer tort. They, in fact, have this two-level confection, which was not the original. The original had only one level. But because they are the soccer hotel and because it was part of their marketing process, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they get to keep the trademark for calling their unoriginal cake the original 
This is very confusing. It's super confusing. <laughs> it's super confusing. And apparently, whenever anybody comes out with trying to call their recipe the original soccer tour, the soccer hotel uh, lawyers go after them even today. So, you know, we may be served a summons in mission. Oh, my goodness. That's mad. It goes back to Marks and Spencer's, doesn't it, with Colin the Caterpillar? It totally does. It totally does. Except that in the case of Vienna, the soccer hotel and the soccer cake are inextricably intertwined at this point. It's, you know, if the Ritz had a cake called the Ritz cake, it would matter, right? It would matter to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or if Marks and Spencer's had a cake that was the Marks and Spencer's cake, imagine them trying to, you know, somebody else saying that, oh, we have the original Marks and Spencer's cake. So how does Hotel Saka protect its legacy now, apart from going after anyone that says they produce or make the original Saka tort? Well, what I was told, I, I actually interviewed the general manager uh, of the soccer. And apparently what they do is they do have this large shop employing something like 40 odd people making the cake and exporting it all over the place. You can buy it at the Vienna airport. You can buy it in Salzburg. You can order one today for 80 euros or whatever it is. Apparently the recipe is in a vault that only a couple of people, the executive chef and the owner of the place, have access to. And they apparently separate out the different stations in the cake making. So one person gets the recipe for uh, the glaze, another person does the eggs, another person does this, another person does that, and nobody actually makes the entire cake in one go. Now, realistically speaking, of course, they know how it's made. <laughs> I mean, how could you not? Of course. The, if of you've course. ever tried to make a soccer, it's actually quite tricky. Uh, the cake is easy. The glaze is easy. That glaze is really tricky. You have to have the right chocolate to get it perfect and beautiful. I've done it multiple times. Admittedly, I'm not the most uh, precise person in the world, but I've done it multiple times. And they do have their own chocolate made for them that has just the right proportions of the uh, cocoa butter and the sugar and so on in it. I'm sure they have very precise uh, measurements in uh, terms okay. of uh, controlling the heat of this thing. And the other thing is it's a lot easier to make 20 sockers than one soccer. And that's simply to do with that chocolate glaze because right, okay. making one batch with that of that chocolate glaze is actually quite difficult. Making twenty batches is much easier just because it's a it has to do with quantity. So I think that's part of their secret. That's why it's relatively yeah. hard to make a good soccer at home. Okay, so the the moral of the story is buy a soccer <laughs> or a, a soccer style. Exactly, tort. and one of the things that has happened around the world is that because that soccer glaze is hard to make, people fake it. And so what you often find is a chocolate ganache, especially in France. So what you often find oh, is that okay. you find recipes in the West or Western Europe, America, that call for a chocolate ganache, which is completely wrong. And I would suggest it's wrong in a couple of respects because it just adds that creaminess of the of the whipped cream, which you're supposed to get from the whipped cream that goes on top of it. It does sound like something that would be on the Great British Bake Off. I'm sure. Let, let them not enter. Let them not enter the borders of Austria with that cake. Oh yeah, or maybe they're not allowed for that reason. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
because the rules are you can call it a soccer only if it has, you know, those ingredients. If you add nuts to it, you're still call it, allowed to call it a soccer, but it now has to be called a nut soccer. So if you put a chocolate ganache on it, then surely you could have called it a ganache soccer or a cream soccer? No, if you put chocolate ganache on it, it is strictly, strictly against all the rules. Verboten, <laughs> verboten. So would you consider yourself a chocolate lover? And if so, or if not, what is it about chocolate you love or hate? So here's the funny thing. And I think this has to do with where I grew up, because I grew up in what is now the Czech Republic. We didn't have a lot of chocolate except in the form of chocolate bars. So a lot of the desserts are fruit-based or nut-based rather than being chocolate-based. And consequently, I am not as huge a fan of chocolate cakes. I like a good chocolate bar. So that may be kind of my approach to all of this. I like a little square of bittersweet chocolate on a fairly regular basis. That's kind of where I am with my chocolate. I'm kind of a chocolate purist. I just want the chocolate. I can understand that. I'm <laughs> kind, of, kind of the same myself, actually. But I do like good chocolate, nice square. Yes, yes. And this is what I like about writing about food in general, but particularly writing about sweets and desserts, is that uh, there's an almost kind of archaeological quality to it. So as you kind of dig through yeah. the layers of the cake, you almost dig through these layers of the history of it. So, you know, you go through that layer of the chocolate and, you know, it goes back, of course, to pre-Columbian uh, civilization. And then you can kind of think about it as the Spanish priests who were drinking it before giving sermons in the Catholic churches during the Reformation, counter-Reformation. And uh, then, of course, you think about Parisian confectioners who would make a brand new bonbon for each season and bring them out almost like couturiers bring out, you know, fashion. Yeah. I think that's the wonderful thing about chocolate. And there's really very few ingredients, sweet ingredients that have that kind of story with the obvious exception of sugar itself. What will you be contributing to this season's virtual potluck supper? <laughs> and it's quite limiting, I'm aware, because it's chocolate. Well, I would think that actually the soccer is great because it is not only durable, so you can make it well ahead of time. It also allows for lots of dinner conversation. And there's also a kind of placeness to it, I would suggest, that desserts these days don't necessarily have. And in that over-the-top description of it, I think, does speak to its kind of discrete elegance, so that it's not over-the-top, it's not 16 layers, it is simple, it is chocolate, it is apricot, it's got whipped cream. And on a plate, it's very elegant. It's that it's like that little black dress at the cocktail party, right? It doesn't have bangles and it doesn't have sequins and it doesn't have all of those other things that you find in many desserts because, of course, the desserts have historically been used as bling. So it has no bling. So there's a kind of quiet sophistication to it. And what's next on the horizon for you? It actually comes out of this because I was looking a lot about how ladies would go out for tea or coffee and cake in the late 19th century and sort of start digging into that and started thinking about how gender informs your attitudes to food. Obviously, 
that is the case, you know, when it comes from anything from breastfeeding to uh, cooking historically. But I've been going a little bit wider than that. So I started looking into women's relationship with sugar, for example. But I also am now interested in going further and looking at, for example, men's relationship to meat and so on. Is there a book on the horizon? There may be a book in there. I'm still not quite there yet. Well, I shall look forward to reading it when it does come out. That sounds fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you to Michael Crondall for joining me today. You can find links to Michael's books, Sweet Invention and A Taste of Conquest in the show notes, along with other sources referenced in this podcast, such as the ad I mentioned at the start of the episode. I'll be posting a recipe for the iconic Sasha Tort next week on my Substack, so do subscribe if you haven't already done so. If you'd like to find out more about my work, pop along to sambilton.com, where you will find details on my books on gingerbread, saffron and chocolate, as well as the forthcoming events I am speaking at. You may also want to subscribe to the Comfortably Hungry newsletter on Substack, which includes recipes and more detailed notes from the show. If you have any questions relating to this season's theme, you can leave a comment in the chat section on the Comfortably Hungry Substack page or tag me on social media. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please let me know on Instagram, threads or Twitter at Mrs. Bilton. That's with two S's. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really will help other listeners discover Comfortably Hungry. I'll be back soon with another chocolate podcast, but until then, take care. This podcast was created, researched, produced, recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by zapsplat.com.